Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. A search today for the word impeachment on Amazon brings up more than a dozen recent books, including ones by Harvard's Alan Dershkowitz, Lawrence Tribe, and American University's Alan Lichtman. Now that the Democrats have recaptured the House of Representatives, one can be certain that the subject of impeachment will be at the forefront. Whether or not it is actually pursued, that's another question altogether. To help us understand how impeachment fits into our country's history and what the Founding Fathers intended, we turn to Jeff Engel, the Founding Director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, who has edited an important and timely book, Impeachment in American History which was published just a few weeks ago. I should add that Jeff is a good friend and a keen supporter of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and is the author of one of the best books I read last year, When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. Great to have you with us. Good to see you, good to see you. Joining you in this book are three eminent historians, and I didn't mention their names <laughs> because I want you to tell us how you pulled this off. Sure. Well, I'll start with the, the basic concept first, which is that, we, like so many people, we were discussing, and when I say we, I mean the postdoctoral fellows of our center, were discussing the major issues of the day. And of course, impeachment is one that has risen to the fore since uh, 2016, really even before 2016 for this campaign season. And being historians, we naturally asked the question, what do the presidential impeachment cases of the past have to tell us about the future? What, is it going to make it likely? Does it shed any light whatsoever? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And subsequently, after thinking about this, we said, well, who would be the best people on each of these subjects? And like we always do, we got our dream list. And thankfully, we got the number one person for each of the three presidents that we asked. So for Andrew Johnson from the 1860s, we have John Meacham. For Richard Nixon, we have Tim Naftali. And for Bill Clinton, we have Peter Baker. And remind us who Tim Naftali is. Yes, so Tim Naftali is actually a fascinating guy. He's a trained diplomatic historian, but he actually spent about six years as the director of the Richard Nixon He was the founding Library. director. I yes, think, he was. In the, in the whole period where the, the National Archives and the Nixon Foundation were struggling for many years in court over who's going to have documents, who's going to be the host institution of the, the Nixon papers, Naftali was brought out there not only to essentially reestablish National Archives control over the library, but also He's the person who created the first Watergate exhibit at the Nixon Library, and it's a remarkably accurate, fair-minded exhibit, which also explains, I think, in many ways why Tim is no longer the Nixon uh, director. He's now at NYU. And uh, Peter Baker. And Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. But interestingly enough, uh, he was on the team that first broke the Monica Lewinsky scandal which of course subsequently led to Bill Clinton's impeachment when he was just a, I think I'm fair in saying this, just a cub reporter with the Washington Post. And extended Ken Starr's work by a few years. Exactly, exactly. And he subsequently published really one of the, the single best books on the, the Clinton impeachment. Take us back to Philadelphia. The framers of the Constitution had what in their mind as they addressed the question of impeachment and who were the major advocates on the various sides? Thinking about the Constitutional Convention in 1787, you know, we all know the lore. We all know the difficulty with the big states versus small states, slave states versus non-slave states. But underlying the entire discussion of the Constitutional 
convention, really underlying the entire ideology of the period, is a notion that power in any system, especially a government system, the word they like to use was encroaches, power grows. And now we say corrupts. Right, exactly. And so obviously the Constitution is designed so that we have three equal branches, co-equal branches, and the idea of course being that no one would be able to accumulate more power than it then was good for the people because the others would also be striving to accumulate power. So it's, it's really a Machiavellian view of the world in many ways. And consequently, there was a realization that the presidency was going to be an important person, obviously, as going to be one-third of the co-equal branches. But what would happen if a president came to power who did not have the best interests of the country at heart? Now, you might say, how, why would a president come to power who doesn't have the best interests at heart? Well, actually, the founders discussed that in the Constitutional Convention very clearly. They said, for example, let's say that a foreign power were to have influenced the election. Imagine that. It's shocking, actually. Um, you know, let's say that perhaps that somebody has monetary interests that they place above the nation's interests. Or let's say, in fact, that they actually are working with a foreign power for, for monetary gain to sell out the American people. There's a whole variety of reasons that a person might be dangerous to have in that position, especially as commander-in-chief. So uh, many of the, the leading people at the convention universally decide we need some mechanism for removing somebody who is so dangerous that we can't simply wait until the next election cycle. Now that's actually the really key issue, frankly, is that um, everyone agreed that you're going to get bad presidents. You're going to get dangerous presidents because they believed that humans were fallible. Um, they modeled the presidency after George Washington and they didn't expect anyone to be as virtuous as George Washington. And that was really key, wasn't it? That impeachment was sort of like, Anybody who doesn't act like George Washington yeah. <laughs> maybe should be impeached. <laughs> well, it really, it really is because, you know, when you think about why Washington was the universal choice, it actually wasn't because he was the smartest guy in the room. He wasn't. He wasn't even the most entertaining or, or gregarious guy in the room. He was actually quite sullen He had a heck ways. of a temper. He had a heck of a temper. You know, he frankly had, didn't have a great financial sense in his own life. And as a general, he lost a lot more battles than he ever won. So what is it about Washington that makes everyone, not only in the room, but in the country, trust him. Integrity. It's his integrity, right. It's his virtue. It's that no one could ever say with a straight face, Washington doesn't put the community and the nation's interests above his own. So on the issue of impeachment, who led the debate? You know, some say? of the people who led the debate were Governor Morris of Pennsylvania, James Madison, and George Mason of, James Madison, of course, being the father of the Constitution, the one whose notes we have as the best resource for what happened in the convention, and uh, George Mason of mm -hmm. Virginia, who, of course, was a contemporary and a neighbor of George Washington's, in fact, in fact, one of the few people in the room who was really willing to say in George Washington's presence that a president might, in fact, do dangerous things because every time with George Washington presiding over the Constitutional Convention, every time the delegates initially began to discuss impeachment, you could almost see their eyes darting to the left, looking at the guy who's going to be in charge that perhaps we don't want to insult him. Mason was able to break the ice on that discussion. And, and you write too about how the discussions were held really behind closed doors in secret. Uh, really secret and, and painfully secret because um, they were held in, uh, in a Philadelphia room in the middle of the summer very hot summer with all the windows closed and of course this is not a period where people show up in t-shirts and shorts and it was basically brutal and unbearable inside and the reason that the delegates were willing to put up with that in fact needed to put up with that was because they needed to have freedom not only to speak their minds openly but more importantly freedom to change their mind 
when convinced by other delegates. You know, if, if everything was publicized every evening, it puts a politician in a difficult position. To, we see that today, obviously. Right, to change yeah. position, right. I mean, what would The Daily Show be without going back and finding politicians who disagree with themselves? In this case, because everything is secret, you see many cases where intelligent, thoughtful delegates, after weeks of debate, stand up and say, my colleagues have convinced me that my position initially was flawed and their position is stronger. And that happened numerous times. I think one thing that's so important to remember is that impeachment is not based on some type of legal transgression. It is political, and I think people have a hard time understanding that. Yeah, you know, especially since so many of the impeachment cases that we've seen, Bill Clinton's most recently, you know, really hinged upon whether or not a president had broken a law, which is really- And the definition can change over time. Right, and that's really not the issue. As, as you pointed out, the real key issue is whether or not a president is deemed to have the best interests of the country at heart. To understand this idea, you really have to go back to what the founders meant by the term high crimes and misdemeanors, which is, of course, one of the key elements for impeachment, one of the requirements for impeachment, bribery, treason, or high crimes and misdemeanors. What's funny is that we in the 21st century have a difficult time thinking about what a high crime is, and the founders didn't. They completely understood. It was a common phrase for them, which is why they didn't explicate it more in the yeah. Constitution. Essentially, a high crime is a crime against the community. It's against the people. A regular crime, if you will, is a crime against another person or another company. And consequently, you can commit a high crime without it actually being a crime, which is to say you can hurt the body politic, you can hurt the nation, you can damage the nation's security, and find no particular law on the books that you've broken. By the same token, a president could break the law any number of ways. My favorite example, actually, is jaywalking. You know, a president who jaywalks has broken the law, but of course, I'm struggling to find any reasonable person who would think that's a good reason to impeach somebody. So impeachment is actually a separate issue from legal jeopardy, if you will. People still get confused about what the word impeachment means because they think, oh, if you've been impeached, you're going to be removed from office. It's a two-step process. Would you outline that? We've had two impeachments, right. but no one has ever been removed from office. Right, and I have to say, despite having written this book and thought about this for a long time, I screw this up like anybody else because it's just so common to use impeachment to mean, in the common parlance, removal from office. But as you point out, it's not. Essentially, there's a two-part process to any impeachment experience. The first is that the House of Representatives has to, with a simple majority, draw up and pass articles of impeachment, which, if you will, is an indictment, essentially saying, we believe the president should be put on trial for the following transgressions, not crimes, transgressions. Then they're done. It goes to the Senate, where senators sit in judgment as a jury. And how quickly does it go to the Senate? Well, it could go the next day if they wanted to. I mean, there's, there's no... Or could it be delayed for it, a period of time? Sure. I mean, like all things in the Senate, there's negotiations over when okay. we want to begin, how we want to begin. So then it goes to the Senate. To give yeah. you an example of the negotiations, one of the absolutely fascinating examples of how this came to play out in the Clinton impeachment is that Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist, and the Chief Justice is supposed to oversee this trial, ironically, had written a book on the Johnson impeachment a century before. So he actually was one of the nation's foremost experts on presidential impeachments because he had just found it an interesting topic as a, as a scholar. And so he knew how things were supposed to go if they're going to model it after the one previous example they had. And a wonderful example of what this meant was that he determined that the president's defenders and the people from the House who were charged with being essentially the prosecutors of the case had to sit on the same side of the aisle 
and the same tables, same position in the Senate as they had in the Johnson administration. But of course, during the Johnson years, the Democrats and the Republicans were completely flipped, right. which meant that essentially you had this weird situation where you had the Democrats for Clinton sitting in front of the Republican part of the Senate and vice versa for the Democrats, which is all to say, this is all negotiated. Um, in any event, the Senate then has this trial, and two-thirds of the senators are required to agree that the president is guilty of impeachable offenses for him to be removed from office. However, he doesn't have to be removed from office. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that a president who is found guilty of impeachable offenses needs to leave office. Now, that's the commonplace understanding, and that's what people at the time understood, but the Senate has within its legal authority, they could find a president guilty and simply sanction him or simply fine him. Ken Starr recently spoke at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth about his book, Contempt, and he mentioned then that Congress perhaps could have censured Clinton instead of impeaching him. Given our current political environment, especially now that Congress has flipped, there's probably no doubt that impeachment is going to be discussed. Do you think that Congress might consider censure instead of impeachment and conviction? Well, you know, first, first a word on Ken Starr, because I think that investigation is really fascinating from a, a broad, you know, psychological, political science. And i got to say, Peter does just a phenomenal job. It reads like a thriller, especially Naftali's chapter. It is wonderful to edit three best-selling authors, because the editing hand, as you can imagine, is quite light. Yeah. So it's really a pleasure. And so one thing about the Ken Starr case that Peter points out, and I think we need to consider for our own times, is that the people charged with investigating Bill Clinton were not charged with anything related whatsoever to what Clinton was actually impeached for. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing psychologically is that having spent several years trying to essentially find evidence that the president had committed malfeasance in a land deal, these people had a natural psychological incentive to succeed Good to, point. to find evidence. You know, in a sense, Ken Starr, 20 years later, can look back and say, wow, I was really wrapped up in the issue. I was really devoted to the issue of convicting the president. 20 years later, I realized I was obsessive as much as the, the Congress was. And so uh, there's a real sense, I think, in which we are most likely to see some form of censure if there is a move towards impeachment for the simple reason that no matter what shakes out in the current political situation, and I want to come back to the word current, in the current political environment that we're in, there is simply no way to expect a supermajority of senators to convict anyone. Um, Adolf Hitler could go on trial, and I'm not sure a, a supermajority of senators would be willing to agree on that. It might be a little bit of an extravagant example, but I think the point is nonetheless a worthy one. And when I say the current environment, that's because the current environment is full of a variety of accusations and swirling rumors against President Trump that have enough evidence to keep people intrigued, but we are still waiting as we have this podcast for the, the Mueller report yeah. on what the actual investigation has proven. And Trump's detractors could essentially censor him at this point any day now for acting, if you will, unbecoming the office, for acting in a, a way that disgraces, if you will, the presidency. That's a far cry from saying we're going to remove him from office, which, you know, a censor requires a simple majority. Impeachment, as we've simple talked about. Simple majority of the... It could be either, actually. Either. It could be either, but um, the, it would be a simple majority of both houses. One thing that struck me in reading the chapters was that in the case of Nixon and Clinton, their wounds were self-inflicted. Johnson, not so much so. And I just wonder, in this situation that we're living in now currently, 
if some of the wounds we're going to see aren't going to be self-inflicted. It's the cover-up. It's the people around the office. Because this, that was certainly the case with Nixon. Yeah, and then know, how he became so self-absorbed and started directing the cover-up. I think that's exactly right. I think you point out something really key, which is that for Clinton and Nixon, they essentially did something wrong that got the ball rolling. Yep. Um, in Clinton's case, it was, of course, you know, having, a. I think, what we can all see in 2018 as being an entirely inappropriate, if not disgusting, uh, relationship with a, a young woman in his office. Um, and, of course, for Nixon, it was the entire Nixon administration's view of how to handle politics in many ways, which was behind the scenes. In each of those cases, they committed the key act. In Johnson's case, one of the contributing factors, and I think we can't overlook this, is that, yes, he did not follow the Republican line, which was the majority view in, in the, the Congress at that time. Yes, he had um, unpopular views on Reconstruction. Yes, he was fighting with other elements of his government. But we cannot forget that Johnson was a jerk. And therefore, he had few political allies who were really willing to go to the And in one speech of one hour long, he mentioned himself how many times? Do you remember what you I wrote? I don't remember what the number 200 was. times. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think we have competition uh, these days. And so I think if we start to play out, you know, that if we see a scenario where President Trump is pushed down this line because of actions he committed, perhaps crimes, perhaps impeachable offenses that are discovered, it's important to know that Trump's support throughout the entire nation is remarkably low. I mean, he has one of the most least impressive approval ratings for a president at this time. Bill Clinton's approval ratings went up during the time when he was impeached because it was perceived that it was a witch hunt against him. To be honest, Donald Trump does not do a lot on the average day to improve his esteem within the American electorate. But in the Clinton case, a lot of senators and congressmen lost their positions because of the votes they took. Yes, well, and, and, and Johnson too. You know, which I think leads to a, a really important lesson that we draw from all of these cases, which is that nobody comes out of this looking good. Well, I know you want to sell books, but I hope that you are sending books to Capitol Hill because I really think and hope that all of the congressmen, representatives, and senators read the book. As you and I have discussed, this is going to be a subject, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. But it's certainly, and you know this, and believe it as a historian, People need to look backwards to understand the future. That's the only thing we have to go on. I want to thank you for being with us on Global IQ. I want to wish everybody happy holidays. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends and even leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.